Good morning. It's Wednesday, the 25th of October, and this is Govind Rajathiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Our top stories and themes for the day: global markets steady as they brace for longer-term uncertainty in Middle East. Oil now under $90 a barrel. India's air conditioners will consume more electricity than all of Africa. Vegetable prices are spiking because of climate shocks and poor storage. What could be done? The US economy was supposed to slow down right now, but it's not happening. And Mumbai's deteriorating air quality is a public health crisis like COVID and deserves a similar response. This is a core report with Govindraj Athiraj. The markets are bracing for longer uncertainty. Stocks rose ahead of tech earnings on Tuesday even as treasuries stabilized amidst growing speculation that the recent sell-off was excessive. Brent crude is now under $90 a barrel, lower than the day before as markets continue to wait and watch. The Treasury 10-year yields, the figure the whole world is watching, slipped as much as 5 basis points to a one-week low of 4.8%, reported Bloomberg. Bitcoin topped $35,000 and the euro swung to a loss against the dollar as data showed that the French and German economies were struggling. Treasuries have steadied after crossing 5% following predictions that the Federal Reserve will need to lower interest rates as opposed to doing the opposite. Wild swings in government debt are unsettling investors as a resilient economy makes it hard to work out when the Federal Reserve will halt rate hikes, said Bloomberg. And more on that in a bit. So Brent crude, like I said, is under $90 a barrel, lower than the day before as the markets continue to wait and watch. In the Middle East, the Israeli army continues to wait orders for a full-blown ground invasion into Gaza, thus keeping world markets on the edge for another day or perhaps even longer. Tanks and troops are massed on the border waiting for orders, even as the Israeli military said it had hit more than 400 militant targets in Gaza and killed dozens of Hamas fighters, according to Reuters. Earlier, Israeli Chief of Staff Lieutenant General Herzi Halevi said that they want to dismantle Hamas and that they were well prepared for ground operations in the south. Predictions and more. Even as the world watches the developments in the Middle East with bated breath, the United States economy is continuing to surprise. So earlier this year, economists and Federal Reserve officials predicted that the US economy would be slowing down by now as higher interest rates would cut into spending and investment. Actually, the opposite is happening, reports the Wall Street Journal, adding that recent economic data suggests that the economy is accelerating despite higher borrowing costs, the resumption of student loan payments, and wars in Ukraine and now the Middle East. Many of whom were predicting a recession this year are pushing up their forecasts. Goldman Sachs economists last week raised their growth estimate for the third quarter, ended September 30th, to an annual rate of 4% from 3.7% says the Wall Street Journal. And by the way, inflation in the United States has eased to 3.7% in September from its recent peak of 9.1% in June of last year. Moreover, the labor market is actually getting stronger over the course of the third quarter. Employers added 336,000 jobs last month, up sharply from 227,000 in August and 236,000 in July. So now all of this hiring is fueling new spending, said the Wall Street Journal, quoting upward local retail and food services sales data. 
even manufacturing including factory output in September after declining in August. Big banks such as Citigroup and JP Morgan Chase been reporting strong earnings this month as well and their executives say their outlook on the economy has improved. Even American Airlines, grappling with a rising oil bill like all other airlines, has said last week it expects travel demand this holiday season to be stronger than last year. All this of course suggests that forecasts in general and specific are going off course for various reasons of course. Now one of them is that consumers are not behaving as one would think they could or would. The challenge of forecasting accurately and thus building business cases and business models around them is thus becoming more challenging and that's the only takeaway I could have at this point. Many companies around the world were clearly not ready for the massive surge in post-pandemic demand. So, I'm not in a position to draw any parallels to India at this point as we have our own share of projections. Though what I could say is that all our predictions and projections unlike in the United States are on the bullish or even hyper bullish side and you need to work backwards or forwards from there if you're still with me that is. Still on the subject of predictions, Germany's economy is projected to dislodge Japan as the world's third largest in 2023 thanks to a slide in the yen against the dollar and the euro according to Bloomberg. The International Monetary Fund's latest projections estimate Germany's nominal GDP or gross domestic product at 4.43 trillion dollars this year compared to 4.23 trillion dollars for Japan. So that would leave Germany lagging only the United States and China in terms of size. The projections come as the yen still remains within striking distance of a 33-year low against the dollar. From one mess to another. Speaking about predictions, this is not something that one could have predicted at least in the Indian corporate context or even perhaps had. Minerals and oil major Vedanta has a new CFO who is returning or perhaps fleeing from struggling education tech company Baiju in barely 6 months. Vedanta on Tuesday said that its current CFO had resigned amidst a major structural overhaul announced last month. The CFO who is returning from Baiju's after a 6 month stint during which he apparently achieved a lot in trying to find and put together the education company's missing numbers. The company is yet to file 2122 results. We are in just to remind you in the end of 23. Nevertheless, the returning CFO thanked the founders and colleagues at Baiju's for helping him assemble the 2021-22 audit in just 3 months. I appreciate the support received during a short but impactful stint at Baiju's he said. So Baiju's as I said is yet to file the 2122 results with the Ministry of Corporate Affairs. Private companies are required to file their annual results by the end of September that year. Baiju's 2021 results incidentally came 18 months after the financial year ended. So now to return to Vedanta, it has announced a plan or it had announced a plan to split into six separate businesses last month in a move aimed at shoring up the group's financial performance even as it fights a bloated debt number. In earlier years, Vedanta had touted consolidation as a way to go and is now doing the opposite as circumstances force a change in strategy. Why are vegetable prices rising? You could blame the weather and climate shocks as the biggest culprit, but there are many other reasons as well behind rising vegetable prices, including of course rising demands, things in turn to changing dietary habits. Price spikes in vegetables have been led by tomatoes, onions and potatoes at this point. You might recall that in September prices of tomato per kilogram had shot up to 300 rupees and then crashed to 10 rupees and farmers were even dumping them on roads. India by the way is the second largest producer of vegetables after China 
And yet, despite these high production levels, growth has decelerated in recent years and fallen short of demand, according to government estimates, says rating agency Crystal in a new report, adding also that vegetable inflation has been the most volatile in the food category. Population growth and demographic transition, income growth and the accompanying change in dietary preferences are some structural factors behind the surge in demand. While vegetable production, including per capita production, is expanded, it hasn't kept pace with the surge in demand, the Crystal study said. It also noted that apart from losses due to weather disturbances and pest attacks, post-harvest wastage, and this is important, during storage and transportation further reduces the stock available in the market. Unfavorable risk-reward dynamics and price uncertainty also discourage vegetable growers, the study said. Vegetables, by the way, have a 15% weight in the food index, the highest after cereals and milk, and like we've said, remain the most volatile component. I reached out to Deepti Deshpande, principal economist at Crisil, and I began by asking her why vegetable prices were spiking more in recent years than ever before. If you look at vegetable inflation, there is a trend rate of growth. On average, it's 3.8% or so. But if you look at the last, say, 100 months only, CPI vegetable inflation was above that trend average in 49 months. In fact, it spiked higher than even 7% in 35 months. So that's the kind of spikes that we've been seeing. It's been a lot and a lot more frequent in recent years. So one, of course, is the increasing intensity and frequency of extreme weather events, you know, be it unseasonal rains, deficient or excess rains, even heat waves, cyclones and floods. So intensity of some of these has increased uh, a lot in recent years. Now, there are various studies which look at the impact of weather shocks on vegetable prices. Some sort of point toward, for instance, there's an interesting one in EPW which talks about how cyclones have a bigger impact. There's something that's been done by ICRIAR which talks about how unseasonal rains in the pre-monsoon period of, say, March to May tends to have a bigger impact. There's also attribution given to pest attacks as a result of these untimely rains and excess moisture, etc. So I think what's really important to understand is that a lot of it has been happening because these climate shocks have become more rampant, more frequent and highly intensive in nature. Now to understand here is one thing, vegetables tend to be more susceptible to uneven weather compared to food grains, for instance. And that really answers your question on why vegetable price spikes have increased in recent years. But another thing is, apart from climate shocks, what we also saw is that underneath it lies the fact that there are demand supply mismatches, which are constantly causing prices to stay vulnerable on the edge. And these tend to spike up and down whenever there's a positive or negative weather shock. So what's changing, or at least in a more linear fashion on the demand side? Basically, if you look at India, there are two, three things. Number one is the surging population growth, which itself requires us to consume more vegetables in addition to a variety of other things. There's a demographic transition. Younger people a lot more eating out, more of consumption of processed foods. Higher incomes that tend to facilitate consumption of non-cereal items, as many studies have found, be it you know meat, pulses, or including vegetables. A lot of dietary preferences, all of that. So on the demand side, these are some of the factors which have really pushed up consumption. And although supply tends to be high, in fact, we are the second largest producers of vegetables after China, growth has slowed in recent years and that's fallen short of demand. Now, there's a Niti Aayog study done a while back, not too old, but say 2018 or so, which highlights some of these gaps. 
and goes to suggest how there is at least a 2% shortage of availability compared to demand for the year that they've seen in terms of vegetable production and availability. Right. So we'll come to interventions in a moment. But is there a way? I mean, of course, everything that you've suggested now on the supply side seems to suggest that you cannot at all predict what could happen. But even I'm assuming within this, there must be some common element or common thread that those who are trying to forecast can do. Yeah, I mean, it's not an easy question to answer, honestly. But if we look at a similar other commodity, where also we did see quite a bit of volatility and in recent years, there has been an improvement in productivity, that's pulses. So we did a report sometime earlier in July and what we also realized is that frequent government intervention by facilitating imports, releasing stocks in the market, increasing the procurement after providing an assured minimum support price, etc. All of those seem to have worked because the troughs and the peaks have come down quite a bit. But honestly, emulating some of that for vegetables is not a clear possibility. For one, it's a highly perishable commodity. So, you know, given the existing storage and transportation infrastructure, government procurement and storage is not really the right option at the moment. So that may be considered at some point and to some extent, but the focus will have to be on significantly upgrading cold storage and transport systems going forward. Now, the contrasting case of, you know, potatoes and onions that we've highlighted in our report clearly shows the importance of upgrading existing infrastructure. In potatoes, for example, where cold storage infrastructure has improved, whereas in onions, that was also highlighted in the economic survey, that the storage there still continues to be as per traditional methods. Their losses tend to be high. So that's one challenge. The second is, of course, price predictability because of the big unknown that is weather. And I think here, one way to beat that really is to adopt more weather-resistant or weather-shock-resistant techniques for production, which will increase yields and reduce pre- and post-harvest losses, etc. Could we be importing more, at least some vegetables? I mean, it does happen in other countries. Yeah, so I think in the short term, number of these policies that I mentioned that we are using for pulses, including imports, is certainly an option available. In the long run, the focus will have to be on three key aspects. Firstly, which I spoke of, which is improving productivity and enhancing yields. Second is improving post-harvest infrastructure to cut down the losses because there are significant losses even post-production and post-harvest. And finally, I think policy intervention in terms of facilitating research, development, etc. and infrastructure creation such that even private participation is encouraged in the whole process. Right. And tomatoes, which must have obviously driven vegetable inflation to very high levels, is a classic example. In beginning of September, it was at 300 rupees. By the end of September, it was being thrown and dumped on the roads, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, in fact, that clearly shows us the importance of having a price signaling mechanism in place, which is something that has improved for pulses, like I said earlier. Vegetables tend to follow something that we call a cobweb pattern. And what happens is that farmers tend to see prices of their crops in one particular season and accordingly so for the following season. So if prices are high, like they were in the June-July period, they tend to sow more. And when that production hits the market, prices crash and then they sow less and so on and so forth. Honestly, if there is some assurance in terms of predicting prices, knowing that they will not see such adverse price shocks and price movements, they can take better decisions in terms of how much to sow, etc. And that could smoothen some other prices. Right. And last question, what's your outlook looking ahead for the rest of this year? And actually, that could mean the rest of this calendar and a good part of the next calendar as well. 
Yeah, so I think for vegetables, inflation, we don't think price pressures are such a big concern now, at least for the next couple of months that is ending this calendar year. Mainly because we are seeing supplies now start hitting the market and that will keep prices tamed, except for a couple of vegetables here and there. But like I said earlier, weather remains the biggest unknown beat, unseasonal rains, heat waves. When those weather shocks strike, whether it's hitting a crop that is ready to be harvested, etc. And therefore, it shouldn't be a surprise really according to us because we now seem to know the real reason why price spikes do happen. It's the gap that exists between demand and supply. So I think over time, focus on improving productivity is the key to tame these price spikes. In fact, it'll be interesting to see that other countries have already identified this trend of demand exceeding supply and are planning for the future. I mean, I came across a research by the Australian Bureau of Agriculture and Resource Economics and Studies, which predicted a 183% increase in vegetable consumption in India between 2009 and 2050, 5-0, driven by higher income in urban households, for example. So they are planning accordingly. And I think it's high time that we start planning too. Right. It's interesting that the Australian Bureau of Agriculture has figures that we don't seem to have here. And I'm sure we would watch it and track it as we should. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Gorman. My pleasure. The real price of air conditioning. It's not just vegetable prices, but demand for electricity thanks to air conditioning that's also zooming. India's demand for electricity for running household air conditioners is expand ninefold or nine times by 2050 and will exceed total power consumption in the whole of Africa today, the International Energy Agency, IEA, said on Tuesday reported the business standard. In its latest World Energy Outlook, IEA said India will see the largest energy demand growth of any country or region in the world over the next three decades. It projected India's energy supply to rise from 42 exajoules or EJ in 2022 to 54 exajoules or EJ in 2030 under what is known as stated policy scenarios. Oil demand is seen as rising from 5.2 million barrels per day in 22 to 6.8 million barrels per day in 2030 as under stated policy scenario, or that's in seven years. The IEA also said that in the last 50 years, India has witnessed over 700 heatwave events which have claimed over 17,000 lives. Air conditioner ownership in India has been steadily rising with growing incomes tripling since 2010 to reach 24 units per 100 households. The impact of cooling needs on electricity consumption is already clear, the Paris-based agency said. Electricity demand is sensitive to temperatures and in India's case, there is a sharp increase in demand as temperatures cross the 25 degrees Celsius threshold. Electricity consumption due to space cooling increased 21% between 19 and 22, or roughly in the last three to four years, and nearly 10% of electricity demand comes from space cooling requirements. Now, all of this is obviously good news for air conditioner manufacturers, but challenging from an energy management point of view. You could add air purifiers to this list, though they consume lesser electricity, but will and do run concurrently in many Indian cities already. More on air purifiers and purity coming up. Mumbai's air quality deteriorates. Speaking about air purifiers and air quality, in 2017, my colleagues at India Spend, the Data Journalism Initiative, set up a low-cost sensor-based air quality monitoring network, mostly in Delhi and northern India, then a few other cities, including Mumbai. 
The objective of this project called Breathe was to collect and display real-time data on a map on our website. Even as the skies and the environment got hazier, people for the first time could see clearly what the numbers were saying about the environmental disaster we were living in through numbers. Among other reasons, because the government, center or state barely had any monitoring systems of their own and surely not as spread out as ours were in residential areas where it really mattered. And more importantly, you could not even see the data real time, which is what you wanted to do. So our studies and data showed that many things that were not clear earlier became apparent for the first time. One, of course, was how bad it was everywhere in the city of Delhi and neighboring areas like Gurgaon. Second, what caused these changes, if any, time of day, wind speeds, and so on. And most importantly, we contributed in our own way to make the issue of air quality a page one headline issue and AQI itself a data point that we all look at now apart from temperature. So waking up every day in Mumbai, I feel a sense of deja vu from six to seven years ago. We experienced bad days in Mumbai last year too, but this year it seems to have entrenched itself, the pollution, almost like an iron-like grip around our very throats and lungs, even as the local administration is watching. So the public outcry in the last few days have seen a hubbub of activity with the BMC, Mumbai's civic authority, saying it will crack down on some 6,000 construction sites and control the emitting of dust and other particles by them, apart from some other moves. It sounds like a fantasy. Given that most, if not all, activities relating to building and construction in the city of Mumbai have never in history been really regulated or barely sought to be regulated, including the mushrooming of them with little or no regard to town planning and the carrying capability of surrounding infrastructure. Nevertheless, all is not lost, at least yet. Air pollution, particularly involving particulate matter of 2.5 microns or PM2.5, is a public health crisis and should be treated as such. The BMC, to give credit where due, did a good job of responding to COVID in 2020 and 21, down to tracking every passenger arriving into the city from outside India and enforcing testing and follow-up and data-based responses. Apart from a host of other measures like jumbo COVID centers to house affected people who could not get access to hospitals. If Mumbai pulled through COVID better than most of the country, or for that matter, even the world, it was because the smartest and most experienced civic administrators in the country got together, banged their heads, came up with solutions, some good and maybe even some not so good, but it all worked. Fighting the problem of air quality which can maim or kill citizens over time, needs similar thinking and response and not assume that the problem will quite literally blow over the next morning. Mumbai need not go the way of other cities, in paralysis because of cross-purposes in decision-making and decision-makers, as well as multiple stakeholders. The city needs to wake up before it goes to sleep, permanently, figuratively speaking, of course. Spotify reports a jump in subscribers and revenue. Speaking about life and living, it's only fair we report on Spotify's numbers since we live on this platform too and many of you do listen here as well. So, Spotify beat expectations on both the top and bottom lines in the third quarter with a net income of 65 million euros in sharp contrast to a year earlier period loss of 166 million euros. I repeat, it was a loss. Revenue touched 3.36 billion euros, 11% higher than the last quarter for 2022 and ahead or up Wall Street's expectations of 3.3 billion euros. Total monthly active users touched 574 million in the quarter, that's up 26%. The net addition of 23 million users represented the company's second largest Q3 net addition performance in history, according to Yahoo News. 
Premium subscribers hit 226 million, also surpassing Wall Street expectations of 224 million, again jumping 16% year-on-year, according to Yahoo News. Spotify expects premium subscribers to increase to 235 million in the fourth quarter. And many of you must be premium subscribers as well, in addition to listening without subscribing as yet. So, moral of the story, do listen and stay tuned to The Core Report, the weekday edition as well as the weekend edition. That's it from me. Have a great day ahead. This was the core report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in. Or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you, including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening.